I really think, especially for historic writers, you, you need to research, heaps of research, obviously, but then you need to spend many hours just picturing yourself in that scene mm-hmm. and just putting yourself in the head of the character. It's not always typing. It really is a case of you have to, you do have to engross yourself in that world. Welcome to Rights for Women, a podcast all about celebrating women's voices and supporting women writers. I'm Pamela Cook, women's fiction author, writing teacher, mentor and podcaster. Before beginning today's chat, I would like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the Dharawal people, the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded, along with the traditional owners of the land throughout Australia, and pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. And a quick reminder that there could be strong language and adult concepts discussed in this podcast, so please be aware of this if you have children around. Now, let's relax on the Convo couch and chat to this week's guest. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Rights for Women. My guest today is someone who is a friend of the podcast, has been on quite a few times before, but someone I will always have back on the podcast because I absolutely adore her books. She's a great writing friend and her name is synonymous with amazingly written, turn the page, contemporary and historical fiction novels. The person I'm talking about is Kelly Rimmer. I've just this morning actually finished this fantastic new book of Kelly's, The German Wife. I was very lucky to receive an advanced copy of The German Wife. It's quite the tome. It's quite thick. And as always, I was excited to receive the book. Kelly's books are the sorts of books that you really need to carve out a good couple of days to read because you need to clear your schedule, basically, because as soon as you start, that you're not going to be able to put it down. And The German Wife was no exception. Kelly is a New York Times, Wall Street Journal and USA Today and worldwide best-selling author of contemporary and historical fiction, including books like The Secret Daughter, The Things We Cannot Say, The Warsaw Orphan, which came out last year, and now The German Wife. Kelly lives in rural Australia with her family and a whole menagerie of badly behaved animals. It's no wonder we get on so well. We've got that in common. And her novels have been translated into more than 20 languages. As I said, anyone who listens to the podcast will have heard my previous chats with Kelly, and we did a great one last year on turning fact into fiction when The Warsaw Orphan came out. Today, Kelly and I will be chatting about The German Wife, her new release. I came away from finishing this book just this morning, actually feeling like an absolute emotional wreck, but in the best possible way. I'm always super inspired when I read Kelly's books. Her stories tug at the reader's heartstrings so well because her fiction is powerful and grounded in the whole range of human experience and emotion, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. It's the kind of emotional honesty that Lee Kaufman talks about in her book, The Writer Laid Bare. So while this is, in a way, a new release episode, I'm also going to be digging in and asking Kelly about how she really goes about making that emotional connection with the reader and getting that onto the page. So, Kelly, welcome to the Rights for Women Convo Couch. So good to have you back. It is very good to be here, Pam. Thank you very much for having me. And congratulations on The German Wife, which is out tomorrow. Thank you. Yes. Yes, it is. 
It is. So we're recording this on Tuesday the 27th. Yep. It comes out on the 28th and this episode's going to go to air on Friday. So it'll be okay. nice oh, and close okay. to release date. Excellent. Yeah, <laughs> Very good. yeah. So I've just told the listeners in my introduction what an amazing book it is. And I know that you hate hearing that stuff, but it is. And and then I had to have the tissues handy this morning as I certainly as I was finishing the book, but also at various times throughout the book. But can you tell us what the book's about? Yes, I can. So it's a story of two women who meet in Huntsville, Alabama in 1950. We've got Sophie, who is a German woman. She was born in an aristocratic German family and she has lived in Germany through the pre-war years and the war years. And now she's come to America with her husband, who is a scientist with the Operation Paperclip program in the US. And he'll be working with the US space program. And then we have Lizzie, and Lizzie is an American woman who um, is grown up in northwest Texas on this little tiny farm and now finds herself also with her husband in Alabama on the American side of the U.S. space program. And so the story is about the first time they meet, they immediately take a dislike to one another, arguing about the ethics of the program and about, you know, whether or not it should even be happening and the impact of that conflict on them, their families and their community. Oh, that's a great summary of it because there are a lot of different threads in this story and mm. there is a lot going on. You've got the two uh, point of view characters. There's dual timelines for each, yes. uh, which I want to talk about as we go on. But there's a note at, in your note at the back of the book. You mm. start by saying story ideas come when I least expect them and then go on to talk about how this particular story came about as a result of a visit to Parks in 2019. So can you talk a bit about how the inspiration for the book came from that visit and and gave you the kernel for the story? Absolutely, yes. So my friend Teresa called me and said, "Uh, do you want to come to Parks? It's the 50th anniversary of the moon landing and there's a festival. And my kids are quite nerdy and both crazy about space. So, of course, let's go. It was 2019. I think it was June or July. It was winter. Anyway, freezing cold. Off we go from Orange, where we both live, near Orange, to Parks. And there was at the space, at the dish, at the radio telescope, there was all kinds of exhibits about space program, the history of the moon landing, all kinds of bits and pieces. But it was one line in one exhibit that actually inspired this book. Mm. It was just talking about the development of the U.S. space program and how from 1950 in Huntsville, Alabama, a group of German scientists worked with American scientists to develop the rockets that eventually took humankind to the moon. And I read that about 15 times and my brain was going, huh? (laughs) How did this happen? (laughs) How on earth were there German scientists in Huntsville five years after the end of the war. And so as we drove back from my husband's driving, it's late that night. I'm like on the phone in the poor rural phone service, trying to Google Operation Paperclip to understand how this happened and what it would have been like. Because I straight away was picturing this group of Germans coming from obviously one of the most difficult, tumultuous, I can't even say the word, difficult times in history in Germany. (laughs) And then they're in America with this group of scientists who were on the other side of the war. So like Mm. I knew there would be people in Huntsville who'd been impacted by what happened in the war and there'd be people on the German side who'd probably lost family members also fighting in the war. It's like how on earth did they work together to achieve this incredible technological achievement and boom, story. <laughs> wow, I love that. I love it. And, of <laughs> yeah. course, I'm guessing in 2019 you'd written The Things We Cannot Say 
the Warsaw orphan. Mm -hmm. So your mind would have been pretty much swimming around all that stuff about the war as well. Would that be right? Yeah, I, I didn't actually intend to write historical fiction. It just happened. And then so I've spent the last few years ensconced in research about World War II. So I was very conscious of that, that disparity of what those two sides of the, the people on both sides would have experienced. It, it is one of those things where the spark of inspiration, it does, it, you can't force it. It does mm. happen when your guard is down. And it, it rare, very rarely, if I sit down and say, I need to come up with a book idea now, very rarely will I successfully do that. Yeah, <laughs> it exactly. It when I'm doing something else. <laughs> so, yeah, that's how it happened. And then after yeah. that, I was down the rabbit hole. <laughs> that was the end of me. I bet there were a lot of tunnels off that rabbit hole too. <laughs> yes. <Yeah. laughs> you also say, Kelly, in the note that writing the book was, you used three words, which I'm going to ask you to expand on a little here, fascinating, frustrating and heartbreaking. Mm. So can you talk about how the book, writing the book was each of those things and why? Yes. So Operation Paperclip. I'll start with, I should say what that is. It was the, an American program, a secret American program to basically take the best of the Nazi scientists, the most learned, the most, you know, advanced in a whole range of different disciplines, medicine and engineering and chemical engineering and all kinds of things and rocketry to basically capture them and take them to the U.S., and then put them to work for the US government. And it was top secret. And one of the rules was that no one who had been an active member of the Nazi party could be included. That basically ruled out most of the German scientists. Because membership in the Nazi party was not necessarily optional uh, for anyone who wanted to have an easy time of it during uh, Mm. the Nazi years. And so some people within the kind of administration rewrote the histories of some of these men. So by the time they got to America they actually look like saints as opposed to what they really were, which was men who had made some moral compromises at the very best. Some of them were actually just pure evil, but they went off to America and had a complete fresh start, whether or not they deserved it. And I've forgotten your question, Pam. (laughs) It was those those three words about how was it frustrating, fascinating fascinating and heartbreaking. (laughs) So fascinating because that's really interesting and there's so much in there. I could write 10 stories about Operation Paperclip and not run out of material. So, and also I wanted to figure out how, what was it like in Germany in the pre-Nazi years and then through the rise of the Nazis mm. that there's, how did this happen? How did this happen? And what was it like for ordinary people on the streets and people on the edge of the Nazi kind of administration? What was it like for them? So that is fascinating. And then I wanted to actually look at someone on the American side. So Lizzie is a farmer's daughter through the Dust Bowl years that again, so interesting and so fascinating, but also so heartbreaking. Mm. And what was really frustrating about this book is the history is so frustrating. It's so frustrating trying to put yourself in the mindset of someone in Germany during those early years. I know where it's headed, but my character doesn't. And so I've got to get yeah. her to make decisions based on what she knows at the time. And they're not going to be the right choices because she doesn't understand, especially in the beginning where it's going but we as readers do yeah so that, that was so hard isn't it because you've oh, got yes. like the hindsight and of course the knowledge of yep. what happened after that but yeah like you say for Sophie and for Lizzie neither of them knew what was yep. ahead they have no idea and then of course there were times when I wanted to write I fiction we like it to be neat bow and that's one of the great things about fiction is there's usually this tidy ending 
and I wanted things to go certain ways because I quite like justice, Pam, <laughs> as we <laughs> tend to. But history isn't always just. And so I wanted to write something that was historically accurate. And at times it was so frustrating because I'm going, no, that's not what should happen here. Something different should happen here. But I want to stay true to the history. Mm. And so that was, it. I think this was probably the hardest book that I've tackled so far. And for those reasons, because I was torn in a hundred different directions about how things should go. Because like you say, and I think I was thinking about this, you know, over the last couple of days as I've been reading it and what I love about your books. And one of the things, I think the big thing is the moral dilemma that you mm-hmm. always pose. And of course, huge major moral dilemma in here, but mm. also a lot of sort of side dilemmas that the characters are dealing with. But that idea of the moral dilemma, is that something that when you sit down and, and a story is starting to form for you, is that something that the, that you then nut out de- quite deliberately at the yeah. beginning? Or? I think I'm one of those cliched writers that uses writing as cheap therapy. <laughs> and so <laughs> every time I open a history book, I'm like, oh, that is not black and white. <laughs> so yeah. I For me, that's part of the fascination of it, isn't it? To figure out, it's always a question of what would I have done? And of course, you never really know the answer to that. And when you look at the behaviour of some people, particularly through the Nazi years, it's easy to say, I would do things differently. Mm. But when you put yourself in the shoes of a character making these choices, not knowing where things are really going, it's actually a much more complex than that. And I think as writers, we tend to be drawn to the complexities because we, we're trying to untangle them. And again, looking for the neat bow at the end of the book, which we do and don't always get, and sometimes yeah. we do, but it's, it is about the question, isn't it, rather yeah. than the answer. And that idea of really putting yourself into that character's skin as much as you can mm. and thinking, what would I do? Mm. What decision would I make in that yes, given that exactly. situation? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So we've got these two characters, Lizzie and Sophie. Sophie. Sorry, mental block. That's Sophie. Right. Oh, I forget my own characters' <laughs> names all the time. No judgment from me. <laughs> I have to write them. I have a window right here next to me and I sometimes write their names on the window. <laughs> So it makes me feel better. They're very different. They're both very strong female Mm. characters, as you always tend to write. They are very different in many ways. And, of course, one's German, one's American. But they've also got some quite similar character traits in terms of their stubbornness and their resilience and things like that. Can you talk a bit about how the two characters came to you and then how you developed each of their storylines? I wanted them to be... They're going, to, they're going to have conflict in the first kind of couple of chapters. I know they're going to collide. As, as you might know, Pam, I plan my books quite extensively. So as I'm writing the outline for this, I'm picturing these two women and I know that from the outset they're not going to be friends. But I wanted to write them in a way that they could have been friends if they'd mm. met under different circumstances. So there's a whole lot of parallels between them that when we first meet them, you think these women could not be more different. They're, not going to, they're never, ever going to have a connection. It's always going to be conflict. As I go through their backstory, and that's why I've structured it the way that I have. So you've got the 1950s timeline, which is like where that's the bones of the story, but I've got their backstories and I've been lucky enough that I've had the creative space to go into to really show how these women came to be the women that they are. Mm -hmm. So we can see that they have more in common than you think in that first scene. And that I actually deliberately set out to write. It's so easy for us, particularly in this modern age, when you disagree with someone to write them off. But you're meeting someone at a moment in time, but they are the sum of all of their history. And so I was wanting to show that these women are more complex than they 
they each assume the other is. They forget to see each other as human, and but they've actually both had these incredibly difficult, traumatic, those years were so chaotic for the whole world and they're trying to show that they're more than that moment. No, I think the way that you do that too with the going into the backstory and the sort of dual timeline that we get for each of the characters does work so well because if we just mm-hmm. saw them on the surface as the 1950s, mm-hmm. you don't understand why they're the way they are. And like yeah, We don't exactly. know why Sophie is so desperate to fit into American society and why mm. Lizzie is so bristly and mm. so keen to defend her life and, and everything that yeah. goes with it. But <laughs> the, the other two characters, Kelly, that, or oh, there's three actually, that, that are very important in the book. So Jürgen, who is Sophie's husband, there's a number yes. of characters who are important, and Mayim and Aunt Adele, the yes. three characters that you say were inspired by real life people. Where did yes. those that inspiration come from? Yeah, so I followed Jürgen's career path, does loosely follow the career path of a real German scientist. And even down to some of the decisions he makes are based on decisions that that scientist made that nobody really knows why the real life person chose the paths that he chose. But in Jürgen, I could play, he's not based on the character and the real Mm. person. You know, the the character is entirely my invention, but the path that he takes is one that a person really took. And I did that on purpose because there's so much speculation about the, his name is Werner von Braun, and he, there's so much speculation about some of the decisions that he made. And I can never really understand him and how he ended up where he ended up. So I've made this new character with a new life so that I, we can hopefully understand the paths that he follows for good and bad. And Mayim was not ever intended to be based. She was just, I, I wanted an important Jewish voice in the book that she's not a point of view character, but obviously when you're writing about Nazi Germany and World War II, you need to have Jewish characters in there. And she mm. is really important to Sophie. She's her best friend in the world. They're basically sisters by choice. And Mayim follows a certain path that I didn't intend for her to follow. I discovered this amazing woman. Her name's Greta Weissman Klein. And she recently died, actually, I think last week or the week before. But she oh, wow. was this incredible woman. She is just she did so many great things and was such a believer in democracy when she after the war ended and so I had my following some of the things that happened in her life too just because I wanted to honor her (laughs) but also once I knew about her then I was just so inspired by her story that I stole some bits of it and wound them through my own story and Aunt Adele my husband's grandmother we called her Baba she died a few years ago and she was this teeny tiny little Croatian woman who just ruled the family with an iron fist but she was so kind and loving and her family was her world and I'd been thinking about her a lot and the things that made her so strong and just so easy to admire so I tried to write a little bit of her into Jürgen's Aunt Adele who's a pretty important character in Sophie's backstory because women like that are not always easy to be around Mm. (laughs) she was Mm. um, my husband's grandmother was blunt and fierce and fearless and the, she, she wasn't nice. She was kind and loving, but she wasn't always nice. So yeah. I wanted to write someone like that who I guess I aspire to be like that. So we're so socialised to be easy to be around and to, to be always be comfortable for other people, but it's not always being true to ourselves. So I've tried to cram some of that into Aunt Adele. I mean, she's my favourite character. <laughs> oh. I, miss, I miss my husband's grandmother so much. She was so wonderful. And she would be so amused to hear that I had done this. <laughs> She'd probably roll her eyes at 
at me. <laughs> so nice to be able to reconnect almost with people through yeah. the writing when you feed them into a story yeah. or into a character. And uh, you probably do it too, but we often do still little characteristics. But I re- I've never done this before where I've taken so much of someone's personality and plopped it into a character. Normally it's much more subtle and even I don't even know I'm doing it sometimes, but this time it was a conscious choice. Aunt Adele is going to be just like her. <laughs> She's in there, yeah. <laughs> So, Kel, you you are very much uh, an outliner and a planner. So how much of the characterisation is planned before you go in or is it really just Mm. the plot and then the character develops as you write the story? I'm a really big believer in having a character arc that I can explain quickly. If someone were to say to me, what is Sophie's character arc? If I can't tell you in a couple of sentences, then I'm not ready or okay. I'm still working on her. I don't always have that at the beginning of the book. I'll have the plot. And if it's in the case of in the case of someone like Sophie, I have an idea how that arc is going to inform her decisions, but I don't really get it until I start writing. So I might plan it loosely. Sometimes I do, but for the most part, I do discover the characters as I go. So that means that even if I've got that firm outline, I might be making changes if the character, for example, Lizzie is someone who knows in her heart that she is meant to be a farmer. She feels Mm. a strong calling to be someone on the land. She's got no interest in kids or marriage. Knows from the beginning of her kind of trajectory as as an adolescent, she knows what she wants for her life, but she lives in a time where that's not a choice she can really make. Mm. She, 1930s America, women are not buying farms. Yeah, (laughs) Um, yeah. And so so I knew that her journey would be one away from that. And then so I knew that the decision she would make along the way would take her away from what she knows she wants for her life. I could plan the plot around that, but it was only as I was writing it that I realised where that exactly it was going to take her and how Mm. it was going to resolve. And I guess as you're writing different scenes in the novel too and things are coming to you as you're writing, that adds those layers, doesn't it, to the characters? Absolutely, yes. Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. So I'm like I outline extensively but I can't be inflexible about it because sometimes they do surprise you. There's things that happen in the resolution of this book that I didn't actually plan. So you have to be open to your brain making connections that you didn't expect Mm. it to make. So how long would you spend, say, on an outline typically, Kelly? I'm really increasingly obsessed with this idea of being bored and letting myself be bored and being mindful, but not in a woo way, but more in a sense of I had an, the book that I'm working on now, I had the idea for it, but it probably took two months to brainstorm it. So that meant it looked a lot like I was spending all of my days walking the dog and hiking and cleaning yeah. the kitchen, but it was just, and then that outline, I think is 11 pages, my poor editor, but I couldn't, it took forever. It really always just constantly, I knew how it was going to be set but I wasn't, it wasn't coming together right until I really let myself be completely immersed in it and bored. So I spent heaps of time on the outline, but it does make the writing for me so much quicker mm-hmm. because I'm then moving that outline into Scrivener and then I'm just, it's oh, so simple. I just fill in the blanks in Scrivener, Easy. but it, <laughs> piece of cake. But when I've, in the past, when I've rushed that process, it makes the writing so much harder because the okay. idea isn't mature. And, and like I said, I've got to be, I'm also trying to be flexible, but that I really think that we, and we, particularly once you're in the, the world of publishing in the commercial fiction world, it's mm. like on to the next thing, let's go, doing a book a year. But I've, I've learned for my brain's sake, there needs to be this period of just walking the dog. <laughs> just It's almost like meditation, but that sounds way more woo than it is. It is just letting myself be bored. So it takes a yeah. while. 
Yeah. No, that's really interesting. And then do you do you then send that outline to the publisher before you start mm-hmm. writing? Yeah, I'm lucky enough now that I'm on the hamster wheel, finish your book, start the next one. Yep. Um, and I have a great agent. She's a genius. And so I'm lucky. I'll say to her, I'm thinking about writing something like this. And then we might bounce back and forth a little bit and get the concept. And then I always want her feedback because she's a genius editor as well. So I send her the outline and she'll say, oh, this is good, but what about this? Or have you thought about this? And then it goes to my editor who also will say, this is good. What about this? Or not the right concept or have you thought about it? It is so much teamwork. Uh, it's I get all the credit, <laughs> but <laughs> left to my own devices, <laughs> some weird stuff coming out, Pam. So <laughs> it's very collaborative. <laughs> and I, if I get stuck, I might bounce it by some friends or like yeah. other writer friends. But yeah, so it's a, it's a team thing. Yeah. And the structure with this one, because we do have the backwards mm. and forwards and the two timelines and the two protagonists, yes. which you often have the dual timelines and, and points of view, but is that something that comes to you organically as you write or is there a lot of fiddling around afterwards? In this case, I was planning a linear story. We were going to meet both women in 1930 and we were going to watch them all the way through to 1950. Okay. And it didn't work because the tension wasn't there. And so I hadn't planned. And I also really sometimes as writers, we can underestimate the reader. And sometimes that looks like you're spelling things out in too much detail. And they're like, come on, I get it already. But other times I was worried when I first thought of this, I thought I'd be really good if it was all jumbled up together. And we had back these kind of historical chapters. And then we had contemporary chapters, which are in 1950. So it's historical too. But then I thought, no, that'd be too complicated. Readers wouldn't be able to follow that. And then as I was going through it and feeling like there's this narrative tension missing and more and more thinking I needed to jumble it up, this part of my brain going, oh, that's going to be too confusing. People won't follow it. How it's jumping back and forth to be too hard. And then if they're going to, this is a complex story. Mm. No matter how I structure it, it's going to be complex. I need to write it in a way that is on a story level, the most satisfying way that I can. And hence we have this kind of, we have four, really four points of view. We've got Sophie's Sophie's historical chapters, Sophie's only 50 chapters, and then same for Lizzie. It is complicated, but it is about trusting readers, piece it together in their heads. And that was such a, I'm so glad I did that because it meant that as the 1950s story being my bones of the book, as that is unfolding, I could jump back in time and just show what happened in the past that informed what was going to happen in the, in the, I love fiction like that, but only where it's organic. I really, so much dual timeline historical stuff now. And sometimes you see these things crammed together and it it can be so frustrating because they don't necessarily belong together. (laughs) But in this case, I think it was the right decision, but it was one that I came to late. So it was harder than it had to be. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think there is a real art to that. Like you say, getting the timing right in terms of mm. where to then change the narrative, where to bring in the new new voice, all that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I found it fantastic in terms of oh, the, the way the story unfolded because, like thank I said, you, you really understood who these women were and where they'd come from and mm. why they were like they were now, which is so important. Thank you. Um, thank you. So I just wanted to read a little section to give readers a taste of the writing, and I'm not picking a part out of the the Nazi Germany storyline, but this is one from from Lizzie, and I have to say when I read this scene, I was so gripped because it's a dust storm. Is is that the right word? It's like a twister almost, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's a pretty famous one, I think, if you're where I think you're going. It's 
the catastrophic dust storm that kind of defines those dust bowl years in the US. So it's mm. the Black Sunday. It was if you're reading. So I just wanted to it. read it and then get you to talk a little bit, Kelly, about yeah, sure. um, you know, how you refine a piece of writing down to the, the bones like this. Okay. So here we go. There was no wind to warn us what was coming that day, just a silent wall of black so high and wide that I wondered if I was seeing things. That couldn't be a dust storm, not with such clear edges. Dust storms weren't so self-contained that you could see bright blue sky right above them. They came on slowly, always preceded by a noisy high wind. This one wasn't following the rules. I just got shocked off that metal near the barn. So bad it knocked me down. The wire on the fence is glowing blue too. Feels like a big duster is cut. Henry said behind me, but then he too stopped dead in his tracks. What in God's name is that? We stood there staring for a beat longer than we should have because whether we could comprehend it or not, that monstrous black wall was moving towards us, swallowing the flat fields of half-dead wheat. Get inside, Lizzie, Henry said. I ignored him, spinning toward the gate to see if mother and dad were by some miracle back already. All I saw were the hens running for shelter and the long, empty drive beside them. Lizzie! Henry shouted, get inside and get some cloth ready. The panic in his voice startled me. I spun back into the house, trembling as I ran to the linen cupboard. I scooped a whole stack of whatever cloth I could find into my arms and threw some sheets on top, and I ran to the pail beside the stove. I'd washed the cornbread batter off my hands in that water two minutes ago, but there was no time to fetch a fresh bucket. I threw the cloth into the bucket and took it into Mother and Dad's room. I closed the window, then hung a dripping sheet from the frame and set the sopping town near the door, ready to block the gap beneath it. I fumbled in Mother's dresser for the Vaseline for our noses, then ran through the house. Every window was open, so I closed and latched them all before I went back to the porch. The wind was picking up. A gentle breeze now rustled my static ravaged hair. The storm was moving so fast, already at the far reaches of our farm. The duster would swallow the house in minutes. Excuse me, goosebumps, just reading it again. Thank you. <laughs> so, so if you can remember... <laughs> How different would that have been in its original form when you first wrote that scene? Okay. All right. Real talk. So yep. this book <laughs> at one point was 190,000 words, which oh is too many. Goodness. That is way too many. And the reason for that is because I had these three settings that were all so fascinating. 1950s Alabama, you could write 50 books about. Same for World War II, World War II in Germany yep. and the lead up to it. And that Dust Bowl stuff is fascinating and I mean, we're both people on the on acreage yeah. you and I yeah. so we know a little bit about life on the land and I lived on a farm for a while like a big 20,000 acre farm for a while when I was in my late teens and so I know this much about farming practices mm. like this much but that was enough for me to suddenly be completely fascinated by how that dust bowl stuff came about and the farming practices that contributed to it and how the land was basically destroyed by agriculture because of yeah. practices that were so detrimental. And so I put all of that in the book, <laughs> every word of it, <laughs> and then went, oh, no, this is way too long. So then there was a cut, and it's the old kill your darlings bit where yeah, there were yeah. paragraphs that I thought, oh, this is the best paragraph I've ever written. <laughs> in the bin it goes. Oh. <laughs> so that scene I had set up, in earlier reflections on other dust storms, I've got the, the family has this whole process that they go through to prepare when there's a dust storm coming. And that came from research from oral histories and photographs that I'd listened to. And it 
brilliant documentary series by Ken Burns. And I had watched and looked at people as they talked about this and heard their stories and read all of this stuff. And I wanted to capture the essence of it. So things like mm. the Vaseline to the nose, because the dust would irritate the lining of their noses and bleed and bleed. And, and of course it goes heat- on, sorry, it goes on from that to talk about the damage that's done mm. to the to their skin, the family skin yes. and, and the wounds and everything that they get. It's horrendous. Yes. I was thinking myself about it was like five minutes ago that we were in that horrific drought and yeah. it was nothing, not even a patch on that 10 years of drought that, that those Dust Bowl states had in the US. We had, what, two or three years? And it was, I remember here, seeing the dust storms here from Mulling Creek and Orange, seeing the dust storms and my sister at Cowra, and she's up on a hill and she would send me these photos of these walls of red just moving That's towards right. people. But so I was trying to draw all that together, my own experience, the sense, the sensory stuff, because- yeah. Some of that is surprising, like the way it stings and the way it abrades your skin and it gets in your teeth. Like it wanted to capture some of that. And also, but then it's also got to be short. (laughs) (laughs) You can't write 200,000 word books. They don't let you. No one wants that. Like (laughs) it's hard enough to ship things around at the moment without the book being this big. So then it was cut, cut and just keep what is necessary to put the reader in the scene. And in this case, I'm trying to capture a sense of the panic. And she she's conscious of, she's lived through some of these before. And this one is obviously worse than the others. And the others were bad enough. And her mum and dad are out. Like they've gone into the town to deliver mm. eggs. Cause so there's all of this panic swirling around. I'm trying to write it. If it if it was too detailed, it was going to bog down too much. And you'd lose yeah. some of the the storms racing towards them. The oral histories do describe this wall of black with clear edges around it. Mm. It was unlike anything anyone had ever seen before and that in itself was terrifying the photos my goodness the photos of that storm and the aftermath of it so you know it's like trying to cram a whole lot in and I wish I was more efficient with words both in speech (laughs) and in writing but I'm not so it's a process of overriding and then cutting it back and it's probably half as long as it was in the beginning Probably half I reckon that scene in particular because I wanted to say so much there Mm. and at the end of the day, you can only, you just have to get the essential bits. Yeah. yeah. But I think that's what makes it so compelling and puts the tension into it, isn't it? It's cutting out everything that's extraneous mm. and really honing in on. that is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so how, how long is the book now? You said it was 190,000. Do you know how much it ended up at? 120 Okay. Maybe. Mm. Yeah. But this is a consistent theme throughout my whole career. <laughs> Overwrite and then edit hard. Yeah, yeah. Um, and even like I, I often say, like I came to publishing as someone who'd been writing for a long time and never published, and none of those words were wasted, and none of many thousands of words mm. that ended up in the the rubbish bin from this book are wasted because. I figured out what I needed to say through writing, overriding like that. I wish it was more efficient, but Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, that is my process, unfortunately. And it is how you get, like that scene, I wanted to achieve certain things. And that was in, that's how I do that, yeah. <laughs> is overwrite and then edit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And like you say, it's a matter of working out your process, isn't it? And then once yep. you do, accepting, okay, yep. that's how I do it. <laughs> yeah. Just got to Here we are that. again. Cut, cut, cut. <laughs> <laughs> the, another thing, Kelly, that I, I love about your writing, I just wanted to ask you about, is we do get quite a lot of the internal dialogue of the characters. And I think that really helps to put us inside their skin is that something also that you're really working at all the time getting the right internal dialogue and then getting the blend in terms of all the other other elements of the writing yeah 
Yeah, it comes again. It comes down to being bored and daydreaming a lot. I think yep. I really think, especially for historic writers, you you need to research heaps of research, obviously, but then you need to spend many hours just picturing yourself in that scene mm-hmm. and just putting yourself in the head of the character. It's not always typing. It really is a case of you have to, you do have to engross yourself in that world, and then so then you can get like your that internal dialogue becomes, it's almost like method acting around my house and I'm just trying to picture. And I think there's a power in it because fiction is all about empathy. And so we're trying to put, I'm trying to help the reader jump into the shoes of Lizzie and Sophie. And I can't do that unless I've done it myself for long stretches of time. That's, I think that's, I re- the more books that I write, the more I'm aware that so much of the thought work happens before the keyboard work and you can't, sh- there's no shortcuts to it. It mm. is really. And then it cut, getting the balance between that. I'm trying to write in deep point of view and I, we're trying to, it's, I'm trying to put the reader directly into her head. And so then getting the balance between that and the dialogue and how much of the setting I'm painting and how, how what does the world look through her eyes? Some of it, as some of it is not that conscious. It is just, yeah. it just comes out and then you're trying to, but sometimes it is a case of consciously stepping back and going, okay, Sophie's in her house. What does it look like? What is she doing? What is she thinking? That's what goes on the page. Yeah. So, yeah. Mm. And do you revise as you go, Kel? No. No. Nope. I'm trying, and especially also I'm writing at the moment, and I did revise the scene the other day. <laughs> I went back. But I would, if I let myself do that, I would not get to the end of the book because I really need to finish the story and then go back and start the revision. Yeah, I, yeah. It's like the race to the finish line. That is, I have to do it that way or else I just would never, ever finish. So, yeah, <laughs> just keep pushing forward. Keep moving forward, and then when you get to the end, you can go back and make it good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Always time, always time to do that. Yeah. This is something that we did talk about last time, but I just want to revisit when you're working with such traumatic material, because there, we know, partly set in Nazi Germany, there's also traumatic things happen happening in the current 1950s storyline. But how do you go about injecting the light into the story when you're dealing with such heavy topics and yeah. issues? You can't just write the dark you have to have the light you have to have light and shade and it is something that I'm constantly it's really hard to balance it but Mm. people did live and love and have fun and they even through difficult times the good of humanity is still there and it's about trying to capture some of that and presenting this holistic world you've got to be honest about the hard stuff but at the same time you've got characters who have things in their life that they still are finding ways to enjoy that was really tricky in this book because it does go through some pretty dark periods in history Mm -hmm. it's hope isn't it even when things are really desperate there's still hope and there's still like the relationship between Sophie and Aunt Adele it evolves over time for the better you can bring a bit of light relief as well through some of the humor of that and then just focusing on the hope even for characters who are not feeling optimistic they're still pushing towards a better future and trying to make decisions that give them a better future. So I don't know, it's every book is a new struggle with that, but it is something that, especially for when I was first writing, it was something I really found very difficult. And I think for aspiring writers who are trying to write about heavy things or historical fiction, it is something you really have to learn to do because Mm. you do not want your reader to put the book down and be so depressed they never want to hear your name again. (laughs) And history for all of the deep, we we, as a species, we're slow learners, that's for sure, but we are moving forward. And Mm. so 
trying to capture it's really tricky i don't wish i could say you do it through this formula but it is just a yeah. case of every revision being conscious of that isn't it and then making mm. sure that you've got that in there as well as as the other stuff that you've yes. you're obviously dealing with absolutely yep because mm. you don't you can't go to great emotional depths like there are scenes in this book where i, I cried when i was especially revising them I, if I'm crying in the book, that's a good sign because mm. it means that I'm even as someone who knows very well that it's fiction, I'm buying it enough to cry. But I can't ask that of myself unless there's bits that also make me because you, you need the contrast there. So it's not an exact science, but it is important. Yeah. It's funny that crying in the books, isn't it? I always know when mm. I'm completely over the whole book and never want to see it again, I know that's the crying stops like, yeah, I just go yeah. through that last revision, and I'm like, I didn't cry. Oh. I'm done. <laughs> Get it off my plate. I never want to see this again. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. <gasps> yeah. So, I know that you have a number of other interviews today, Kelly. So I don't want to keep you too long. But where do you see this book, The German Wife, in terms of your overall? career path and where you are now with your own. It was definitely the hardest one I've ever tackled. And definitely it was the hardest to get right. Just I always am someone who does a lot of revisions. There's always like dozens of versions of the document by the time I'm compiling it into Word from Scrivener where I write. But this book, this was really tricky. And it was I actually there was a point there where I thought I can't make this work. And the book is dedicated to my agent, Amy mm. Tannenbaum. And that's because when I could not see how to finish it, how it was a draft, but it was rubbish and I couldn't see how I could possibly make it work. If but for her influence, I don't know how I would have kept going. I could not oh, have really? finished it. And I want to be honest about that because I know there'll be people who are writing their first book who listen to this or their third or and and think, oh, this is going to get easier. Yeah, it does in some ways. You know, what, what comes after structural edits is going to be the copy, yeah. the process. But every new book is a whole new challenge. And you want to be working at the edge of your comfort zone. So in some ways, looking back, when I was writing this, I was thinking, Kelly, why did you do this to yourself? This is too hard. I can't do it. But now I think I'm really glad I did because even though I know I didn't get it 100%, I finished it. I showed myself that I could. And now I'm tackling something hard again in the next book. Like you always want to be moving forward. If I ever get to the point where this is easy, I think I'll have to take a break or change genres or something because it's not meant to be. It's not meant to be like, oh, you just follow a formula and out pops a book. So it's meant to be as much as I'm writing commercial fiction I still think of it as an art form and I want it to challenge me and actually this book on a personal level there were times when I wanted them to make choices and I I know that they couldn't and I'd be like why are people so dumb (laughs) (laughs) people are so annoying so yeah yeah, this was a tough one. <laughs> and um, you were writing it during COVID and lockdown and homeschooling too, weren't you? Yes. Yeah, that was, oh. But see, the thing is my kids were like this year, they're 10 and 12 now, and they're both, they were really good with the homeschooling. They actually really like it. They're the kind of kids who could probably do it from home. But I am the kind of person who, and I'm trying to work on this, Pam, it's a real weakness, but I'm like, I want to know everything that's going on in the world, make decisions. So I, it was really hard for me to not focus on the doom scrolling yeah. and keep my head in the book. That was probably the bigger challenge rather than I've got my lovely little office and I can leave the house and come and work. And the kids would do their homeschool. And we segmented the day and my husband was at home. It wasn't so bad, that aspect, yeah. but it was more dealing with the general anxiety in a world that's feeling very unstable and trying to write about a world that was very unstable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
that was tricky on a mental level. But again, it's about being balanced and making good choices about sleep and (laughs) downtime and all those things, (laughs) the same things that everybody else was going. And look, let's face it, I'm a writer who gets to come and work in my pyjamas and my job didn't change and I still had employment. So I really can't complain about that. There's I wasn't sick, like really, at the end of the day. But I won't look back on the writing process of this book fondly. (laughs) Because it was hard. (laughs) But you do have that beautiful writing cabin now, don't you? Yes, it's almost finished Is after it? over a year. There's one more. Uh, actually, I haven't got a light in here. That's The, the light exists, but it's not installed. And okay. the, the plumbing's got one little last day left to do next week and then oh, it is done. But Exciting. Yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah it is exciting. As you having your yeah. own space is the best. Oh, it's, it's so good. essential. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and is the next book going to be historical too, Kel? It is, yes. So I wanted to write about, and I'm only in the early stages of this book, so I can't explain it very succinctly. Mm. If I can ex- ever explain anything, it's about, I, I was thinking about everything happens for a reason. And that's not necessarily something that I, a, a philosophy that I subscribe to. And I was thinking about how we find meaning in things in different ways. And so I wanted to write about these two women who meet in England training for the British Special Operations Executive. So they're both training to go into occupied France. And it's a story about the choices that they make in their friendship and the impact that has on the next generation. And so the way that people find meaning in the things that happen in life. So that's about as short as I can say it. Right. <laughs> it's, but it's, it doesn't have a title. It's just these two women who may or may not even keep the names they've got now, but yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm writing it now. Mm. Yeah. And is this the first book you've set in the UK? Yes. Yes. Yeah. So part of it is set in France and part in the UK. So oh, that'll be a change. Yes. <laughs> change of scenery. Yeah. Yay. Oh, that's so exciting. Yay. Thank you so much for chatting. I know oh, my pleasure. No, thank you very much tomorrow. for having me. Yes. And um, I know people, are, you know, are just going to love it because it was oh, thanks, amazing. Thank you. That's very kind of you to say. And thank you again for having me on the conversation couch. Okay, on the convo couch. Okay, thanks, Kelly. See you, Pam. Thanks for listening to Rights for Women. I hope you've enjoyed my chat with this week's guest. If you did, I'd love it if you could add a quick rating or review wherever you get your podcasts so others can more easily find the episodes. Don't forget to check out the backlist on the Rights for Women website. So much great writing advice in the library there. And you can also find the transcript of today's chat on the website too. You can find details on the website on how to support the podcast through Patreon and get exclusive access to the extended audio and video of the monthly craft episode. And you can connect with me through the website at rightsforwomen.com, on Instagram and Twitter at W4WPodcast, the Facebook page Rights for Women, or find me and my writing at pamelacook.com.au. Have a great week, and remember, every word you write, you're one word closer to typing the end. <laughs>